Good morning, dear brothers and sisters. Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a joy to come to you this morning, bringing God's word, albeit through the medium of technology. Several churches, for lack of technology, are unable to meet and see other believers. And I consider it a special privilege for our church that we have this in God's providence. So we are able to see each other week after week and even on cell group days. And we thank God for that. So let's get straight into God's word. And let me begin with an illustration this morning. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, has this insightful conversation between Lucy and Aslan, the lion who is the Christ figure in the story. Aslan says, do not look so sad. We shall meet soon again. And Lucy said, please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And Aslan said, I call all times soon. And he instantly vanished. Let me make a statement here before I move on. God does not reckon time the same way we do. God does not reckon time the same way we do. When Dr. Billy Graham preached on the second coming of Christ, he often told the story of an old clock whose chimes rang every hour, once for one o'clock, twice for two o'clock, and so on. One night, the clock malfunctioned, causing the chimes to ring 13 times. A little boy heard it and raced through the house yelling, get up everyone, get up. It's later than it's ever been. It's later than it's ever been. How true that is. It's later than it's ever been. And we are closer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than ever before. That should bring some questions into our minds. What difference should that make in our lives? Or is there a way I need to live as a Christian in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return? Is there a way I need to live as a Christian in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return? These are important questions, especially in the situation we find ourselves. The passage we're going to look at is an incisive one. It is significant as it offers insight into Peter's understanding of Christian life and Christian service. For him, the hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ was a living reality. But he firmly held that this eschatological hope must promote loving Christian relations and faithful Christian service. The hope of the future is to have a sane, sanctifying impact on the present. In waiting, as well as in serving, the true goal of the Christian life must ever be to glorify God. So today's passage will reveal to us three things that you and I must do to live well in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return. Three things that you and I must do as Christians to live well in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return. Peter discussed these three features in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. I will wait for about 10 seconds for you to turn there and then I will read the passage for you in its entirety and then we can get to the study or the message on hand. 
I'm reading from the ESV here, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 7, you will see that you must be clear in discerning and spiritually aware to pray better. Now hear me please. You must be clear in discerning and spiritually aware to pray better. Peter is saying, keep your emotions under control and stay clear-headed so you can pray appropriately. What is Peter meaning in saying this? He explains that in three steps for our understanding, and let's go step by step here. First, he says, be level-headed and sensible. Look at the first part of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Let's stop right there. For Peter, the final judgment and vindication of Christians is far from wishful thinking. That's why he says, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is at hand. The phrase is a unique one in the New Testament, but we can understand what it means. Jesus in the Gospels says that the one enduring to the end will be saved. He also said that before this end comes, certain events must happen. Paul also used very similar language when he said to the Corinthians, the end of the ages has come. John, in the book of Revelation, also talks of the end. And here, when Peter writes about the end, he is referring to this age that is going to come to an end. And not just this age, but everything associated with it will come to an end as well. And that's why he clearly says, the end of all things is near. This phrase clearly summarizes the Christian anticipation about the future. Now notice the two words, the end. The end does not merely mean that history is coming to an end, but it also is describing for us the goal towards which this present age is moving. It has the idea of something that will be fulfilled in the future, a goal that is about to be reached. And in this context, it is a return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That goal, Peter says, is at hand, is near. This phrase is used in the New Testament of the approach of the kingdom of God in relation to the first coming of Christ as well as the second coming of Christ. It means to approach, to draw near. The event that Peter is discussing here has drawn near and is now in a position where it's ready to break in. In other words, the return of Christ is imminent. It's the next thing on the program. And Peter's statement here 
expresses the conviction of the early Christian church. Christ's anticipated return was always near to the feelings and the consciousness of the first believers. It was the great consummation on which the strongest desires of their souls were fixed and to which their thoughts and hopes were habitually turned. There were some in the early church for whom the delay in the expected return of Christ did create a problem. And Peter addresses that in 2 Peter 3. Yet, with the passing of the centuries, this hope has not been invalidated. No dates for the return of Christ were revealed to the apostles. They did not know when their Lord would return. They were only instructed to be expectant and ready for his return. There was nothing in their experience when they looked around that expressly prohibited such an expectation. On the contrary, much that they saw around them made them emphatically proclaim that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Yes, there's a lengthy time between their expectation and the actual return of Christ. But that interval must be understood in the light of God's chronology, not man's. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's why today I would use the same language about the coming of the Lord. It's just around the corner. The end is near indeed. There is nothing in my experience that expressly prohibits such an expectation. In fact, what I see happening around in the world makes my belief stronger. Just like Peter's belief that the end of all things is indeed near. If anyone dallies with sin and the world, thinking I have a lot of time on my hands, he doesn't understand the message of the New Testament. The judge is at the door. The end of all things is near. It certainly is nearer now than when Peter actually wrote these words. For Peter's readers, the original audience in Asia Minor, the end was good news. These believers were suffering for their faith. They recognized that the end would mean that God would visit his people. Jesus Christ would be revealed from the heaven and their suffering would finally come to an end. Isn't that great news for us too, my dear brothers and sisters? Just stop and think for a moment. Jesus Christ could crack the sky any moment and take us home to be with him forever. I don't know of any truth more motivating than the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's come to the point here. In the New Testament, eschatology always has ethical implications. It's not simply to quench our curiosity about the future. That's why whenever in the New Testament you see a discussion on eschatology, there are always exhortations on how to live following it. And Peter here is doing the same thing. He's saying if you believe that the end of all things is near, then you've got to live a certain way. The nearness of the end must bring about a healthy sense of urgency and action. And that's why he says in the next part of the verse, therefore be self-controlled. Therefore be self-controlled. 
Be self-control means be sensible. Be of sound judgment. The word here is also used to describe the man with the legion of demons after Jesus healed him in Mark chapter 5. With the demons gone, he was in his right mind. The same word is also used as a qualification for elders. It points to a man who is level-headed, not impulsive, not swayed by fluctuating emotions. Knowing that we are at the end times should not make us go off the deep end. Rather, we should be sensible. Peter is saying, don't get so excited about the coming that you fail to live out the responsibilities of the present. He is urging us to be self-controlled, balanced in our reactions, and able to see things in their proper place. Notice here that sound judgment also means that you and I are far removed from the worldliness and unbelief of those who try to explain away the promise of the coming of Christ. And it also means that we stay away from the sensationalism of those who predict the date and time of his coming. Be of sound judgment, says Peter. Be level-headed and sensible. Second thing, Peter says, be fully alert in mind and attitude. Look at the second part of verse 7. And sober-minded. And sober-minded. This is a second imperative or a second command given by Peter here. Be sober-minded. It means to be clear-headed. We should have the clarity of mind of a person who is sober and not drunk. It is a call to remain fully alert and in possession of one's faculties and feelings. The eschatological context of this passage indicates that we must be free from every form of confusion that results from befuddled views and feelings about the future. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, is what Peter's ex exhortation is. If I could make it very practical, this is a type of Christian that is, frankly, going to be repulsed by much of what Hollywood and Bollywood produce, especially some of the shows that do nothing more than exalt sin. So this is the type of Christian that is looking for the Lord's return he is watching for it. He is anticipating it. He is preparing himself for it. He is longing to see the Lord face to face. But Peter says, be fully alert in mind and attitude. Third, he says, you can pray effectively and appropriately. Look at this third part of verse 7. For the sake of your prayers. Peter now explains why you and I must be of sound judgment and sober spirit. He says it is for the purpose of prayer. You see, the reason given for staying sane and sober is so that you and I can pray more effectively and appropriately. When we see things from God's perspective, when we are clear-headed, we submit to God in prayer. It is that kind of prayer that brings power and guidance in any situation, no matter what's happening around us. I don't know if you struggle with your prayer life, but many of us certainly do. And one of the reasons is that we often lack self-control and a sober mind in our lives. We were really self-controlled and sober. As Peter writes, we would automatically begin to pray better. We would automatically begin to pray appropriately. 
If you really believed that the end of all things was near, you would pray and I would pray as well. So this morning, brothers and sisters, let me ask you a few questions as I honestly ask myself these questions. How long has it been since you last had a real quality quiet time with the Lord? How long has it been since you last experienced God's presence in your life in a delightful way? How long has it been since your Bible study was a great delight to you and you were discovering marvelous gems from God's word that thrilled your soul? How long has it been since you were moved to tears by the thought of God's grace in your life? If it has been a long time and you cannot even remember when it was, would you get your focus right today so that you can pray? Remember what Peter is saying? We need to be clear-headed. We need to be, get our focus right so that we can pray appropriately. So in verse 7, we saw that we must be clear in discerning and spiritually aware to pray better. Then there's a second thing that you and I need to do to live well in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return. And that is in verses 8 and 9. They say that you must love your fellow believers and open up your home. We must love our brothers and sisters deeply and share what God has given us. Peter explains this in two steps. And let's go one by one here. First, Peter says, be diligent in love and forgiveness. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter now moves from personal aspects onto community relations. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Peter, in using the word above all, is not saying that love is to be put above prayer. He is using that to show that love is the most important part of these four verses that is going to talk about. The reason that Peter stresses love is because it is the most essential Christian characteristic. Jesus said it best in John 13 verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Peter knows loving others is difficult. So in giving a command to love, he is adding the qualification earnestly. Be earnest. Be fervent in your love for one another. The word for earnest in the original language means stretched or strained. The Greeks originally used this word to describe the way a horse stretched itself to reach its top speed. This word was often used to describe the taut muscles of an athlete who strains to win a race. Now, I like cricket, so let me give you an illustration from cricket to explain this word. Think of a cricketer fielding at long off position. He is seeing the ball coming towards him in the air. It's way higher than him, and so he jumps as high as he can with all his strength, stretching his body to the maximum limit in order to catch the ball from falling over the boundary line. That's the description that Peter is giving 
and using the word earnest. So that word means stretched out love. We must make that sort of an effort because true love is difficult. It costs something. Once you get to know another person, real love means going to the wall for them, stretching to the limit, putting yourself in a place where you can be hurt. And Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Are you and I exhibiting this kind of love today towards other believers? It's so easy to use busyness, grievances, shyness for why we don't love other believers. But Peter insists that in light of the fact that the end is near, we must do this. We must keep loving one another earnestly. There is a reason why Peter wants us to be fervent in our love for one another. Look at the next part of the phrase. Or the next part of the verse. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter probably is alluding to Proverbs chapter 12, uh, 10 verse 12. Which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. What exactly does Peter mean by this? To be quite honest, no one knows for sure. Most likely he is saying that love will forgive or overlook the faults of others in the church. The meaning is not that love condones or hushes up sins, but love refuses deliberately to drag out the sins of others and expose them to the gaze of all. It prefers to refrain from the needless talk about others' sins. So love is a most valuable virtue in a community that needs to preserve its solidarity in the face of persecution. Every time someone wrongs me, I have two choices. I can deal with it, forgive people and move on, or I can drag that person through the mud and stir up all kinds of dissension. Love refuses to wash its dirty laundry in public. Love handles it privately. It goes out of its way to veil sin, to treat it discreetly. It is exactly the opposite of hatred that exposes weakness and humiliates somebody else. Love has a short memory and sealed lips as well. We need this truth because others will fail us a multitude of times. Love isn't surprised when close friends fail. It isn't surprised when promises aren't kept. It isn't surprised when others say unkind things. It isn't surprised when we are criticized unfairly. Fervent love expects others to fail, expects to be hurt, and expects to be used unfairly. It goes on loving anyway. Two great preachers in church history, George Whitfield and John Wesley, had thorough disagreements with each other on Bible doctrine. Well, actually, disagreement is an understatement in this context. And once a partisan uh, asked Mr. Whitfield, Sir, do you think that when we get to heaven, we shall see John Wesley there? No, said George Whitfield. I don't think we shall. And the questioner smugly nodded and smiled with agreement. But when George Whitfield went on to add something, the questioner changed his face. Whitfield went on to say this. I believe that Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near the throne of God 
that poor creatures like you and I will be so far off as to be hardly able to see him. What a response that is. That is love, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, let me say to you honestly, this statement, as I want to say the same thing honestly to myself, never let our differences with each other destroy our love for one another. Because by this, all men will know we are the Lord's disciples if we love one another. No church can survive very long unless the members decide that love will cover a multitude of sins. Because sin is everywhere. Love must be stretched out to cover it. With that stretched out love, we will never, uh, we will never have any dissensions in the churches. In a practical sense, what does it mean to cover the sins of others? Let me give you a few suggestions here, probably five of them. Number one, you don't talk about it all the time. Number two, you don't try to intimidate people. Number three, you don't keep reminding others of their sin. Number four, you pray for God to forgive them and bless them. Number five, you move forward with your own life. From God to us to others. Grace to us and grace to others. That's God's plan. So Peter is saying, be diligent in love and forgiveness. Secondly, Peter says, show hospitality without complaining. Show hospitality without complaining. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. A very practical manifestation of love is hospitality. The word hospitality means kindness shown to strangers. That was vitally important in the early church because they didn't have buildings. In that day, traveling Bible teachers and evangelists would come to a town and stay with a local family. They had to do that because they didn't have a Sheraton or a Hilton or a Holiday Inn. The inns that they had in those days were filthy and dangerous. The first century Christians depended on hospitality as they spread the gospel. So welcoming other believers into your home was a matter of honor in those days. But how do we show this hospitality? Peter is using two words here, without grumbling, without grumbling. The Greek word here means to mumble under your breath. It's saying to ourselves or to our spouse in secret, I don't know why we get all these travelers. Or I wish Paul would just move on to other families and live with them. We are short on supplies today. We have to be very careful that when we demonstrate hospitality, we do so with a pure heart. When we complain either out loud or in our hearts, we have not entirely carried out God's will. Now, I know that CBF is the epitome of this quality, and we praise God for that. But maybe there are some of us who don't look at our homes the way the early Christians looked at theirs. They saw their homes not only as a shelter for their families, but also as a tool for ministry. They understood God had given them not just a place to live, but a place that can be used as a means for ministering to others. Peter is asking all of us 
to open our homes to minister to those who we don't know very well. It certainly includes Christians from other nations, but it also includes refugees, perhaps, missionaries, families in need, and even displaced children needing a place to stay. So Peter is saying, show hospitality without complaining. So we saw two things so far about how to live well in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return. Number one, be clear in discerning and spiritually aware to pray better. Number two, love your fellow believers and open up your home. Then there's a third thing we need to do, and that is in verses 10 and 11. They say that you must serve the church with your gifts to glorify God. You and I must serve the church with our gifts to glorify God. How are you using the gifts that God has given you? Is our church better and stronger because you're here? Are you wasting God's gifts or are you using them for his glory? Now, Peter explains this again by saying two things about it. And let's look at that one by one. First, he says, serve other believers with your spiritual gifts. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter breaks out into praise and nearly concludes his letter in excitement. You and I can readily glean several insights into the nature and use of spiritual gifts from these two verses. But let's just for the moment look at verse 10 alone. In verse 10, we can learn three things about spiritual gifts. Or perhaps four things about spiritual gifts. Number one, every believer has a spiritual gift. Look at the first part of verse 10. As each has received a gift. No believer is excluded. You and I can't excuse ourselves by saying, I'm too shy or I'm not impressive. You have received at least one spiritual gift. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were given the gift of eternal life and also at least one spiritual gift. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? If you don't, Come talk to some of us and we will help you find out what it is so you can use it to the glory of God and for the benefit of others in our church. Second thing, you are to use your gift to serve others. Look at the second, uh, second part of verse 10. Use it to serve one another. Peter writes that spiritual gifts are to be employed in serving one another. In other words, God didn't give you your gifts and me my gifts to promote self-satisfaction or spiritual pride. He gave you gifts and he gave me gifts to build up the body of Christ. This means you and I must ask some honest questions of ourselves. How am I using my gifts to build up the body? Who's benefiting from my gifts? Number three, you are a steward of your spiritual gift. Look at the next three words in verse 10. As good stewards. We are called to use our gifts as good stewards. In biblical times, a steward really had nothing of his own. He may have managed the entire estate of his master, but the riches at his disposal were not his own. His success was measured in how well he managed those riches. In the same way, 
as stewards of the spiritual gifts in the church. We are judged as a good steward on the basis of our effective use of those gifts in service of others. One day we will stand before Christ and give an account for the gifts he has given us to manage. Are we being faithful stewards of the gifts God has entrusted to us? Number four, your gift may not be the same as anyone else's gift. Did you hear that? Your gift may not be the same as anyone else's gift. Look at the last part of the verse here. God's varied grace. Beautiful phrase. The Lord of the church has distributed his bounty with masterful variety to enable his people to build up his church. So don't compare yourself with anyone. Don't wish that you had someone else's gifts. Don't compare your opportunities with someone else's opportunities. You have been uniquely gifted. Use your gifts to serve the church. Secondly, and lastly, Peter is saying, glorify God with your spiritual gifts. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, here is the purpose clause. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter categorizes spiritual gifts into two groups, the speaking gifts and the service gifts. Speaking includes anyone who teaches the word of God, whether publicly or privately, whether to a group or one-on-one -on -one or in a cell group or anywhere. It includes speaking from a pulpit or in small groups or even to a Sunday school class. And Peter is saying, whoever speaks, let him speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. If you speak, make sure you speak the very words of God. When I speak, let my words be based on God's word. The idea here seems to be that the speaker utters his message with the consciousness that he is not giving merely his own opinion, but God's message under the guidance of the Spirit. That's what Peter means here. The next part of verse 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Service gifts include everything else in the church, such as cooking a meal for a new mother, cleaning up after a church event, dropping some believers to their homes, counting the offering, doing the work of a deacon, stacking up chairs, changing diapers in a nursery, visiting the sick, uh, calling a friend on the phone and praying with him, writing a note of encouragement, giving money, praying, ushering, singing, or volunteering to drive kids to a camp in Sajapur. It includes any of the thousand other things that keep the church going. Whatever your gift is, do it in the mighty strength which God supplies. That's Peter's point. Now come to the final part of the clause. Here is the purpose clause, like I mentioned. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I like that phrase. This is the ultimate purpose in using our gifts. If spiritual gifts are to be employed in serving one another, they are ultimately to be employed into the glory of God. 
In the final analysis, this is the goal of every aspect of our Christian lives. And Paul summarized it very well in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says, you and I can live well in the shadow of the Lord's imminent return by thinking accurately and living supportingly to bring honor to God. By thinking accurately and living supportingly to bring honor to God. The king is coming soon. Don't go sit on a hilltop to wait for him there. Rather, I need to ask myself and you need to ask yourself, are we living so that others will see how great God truly is? Are you depending on him in prayer? What about my love for other Christians? How about your management of the gifts God has entrusted to you? Your life and my life should always be ready for his coming. Don't let his coming catch you unprepared. Let me finish with an illustration here. Over the years, I've watched uh, segments of the Special Olympics. These games feature mentally and physically challenged athletes from around the world. One of the most memorable events that happened during the Special Olympics was a foot race uh, among a group of people, each of whom had Down syndrome. It was a very moving race to watch. The runners were close together as they came toward the finish line. And all of a sudden, one of them stumbled and fell. You would be amazed to know what happened next. The rest of the runners stopped. They didn't dash towards the finish line. All of them stopped. They went back as a group, helped the runner who had fallen to stand up. And then they all started running the race from that point on, all over again. In the same way, God's heart for us is to finish our race as a team or better, as a family. He doesn't want us to run ahead of others. He wants me to grab you by your hand and pick you up. And he wants you to do the same thing for me. Then together, we run hand in hand for the finish line. Therefore, in one sentence, Peter's exhortation to all of us is this. Look up and live well. Look up and live well. Thank you for your patience. May the Lord bless you all. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence this morning and we want to thank you for your word. Although it was written about 2000 years ago to people who were scattered because of persecution, it speaks to us today. It speaks to us with relevance. It speaks to us with profundity and clarity. Thank you for reminding us this morning from your word that the end is indeed near. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. The judge is indeed at the door. I can't live like I have a lot of time on my hands. I need to live as a sensible person, clear-headed, sober-minded, and help all of us as a church to live together in the ways that Peter talked about a lot, loving one another diligently, forgiving one another, being hospitable to strangers, and using our spiritual gifts 
to serve one another and to ultimately glorify you with the spiritual gifts. And we realize ultimately all glory and dominion and power belongs to you and to you alone. And we want to thank you for that. We want to thank you once again for speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.